0: This episode is brought to you by Indie Insights. Indie Insights is our bi-weekly newsletter and love note to the film industry, movies and the creatives that make them, not to mention you, our esteemed listeners. Inside you'll find curated industry trends, articles, exclusive commentary and underappreciated films from filmmakers like you worldwide. And the best part is that it is completely Free, So join today at www.bonsai.film. It takes just a few seconds. And once you sign up, you'll get the very next newsletter on Friday morning. It's that simple. Go to www.bonsai.film to get Indie Insights, our biweekly newsletter, and join a network of film creatives just like yourself. And don't worry, we'll never sell your information or spam you with a bunch of nonsense emails. Just the bi-weekly film industry goodness you need. And if you ever tire of Indie Insights, simply unsubscribe. No gimmicks, no games. So go to www.banzai.film to get Indie Insights for free.
1: Hello, I'm Sharla Lariston. I am a comedy writer. I am a supervising producer on Grand Crew on NBC. And I just started a new course called The Working Writer, which is a career focused course for new and aspiring screenwriters.
0: Sharla Lariston, welcome to the Make It Podcast.
1: Hello. I feel like I said writer 80 times in my intro.
0: (laughs) <laughs> you know, I didn't know. I, I, didn't, I didn't know. It didn't, it didn't were, come off as like a offensive, <laughs> as an offensive use of the, yeah. of the word. But, you know, I've um, done some writing in my day and I went to school for journalism and uh, we were always taught, hey, be careful how many times you use an adjective in a sentence, uh, yeah. especially in the written word. Now, when you're talking, it's cool. Like we all know a person that says like or really as their primary or vary as their primary adjective for every single thing they're describing. Right.
1: Yes. Yeah.
0: <laughs> which, which the ear tolerates, but the eye won't like if right. someone wrote that way. <laughs> and I know you're a big proponent of write how you speak. Yes. But It's like, and I think that's so true. I've always said that, mm-hmm. but if you're writing and you really want it to, like you want it to jump off the page and you want to keep that reader interested, you you do need to like mix up
1: the Absolutely. way you're
0: describing things. That's, and if, that's... if that
1: was a written intro, I would have edited that intro, but I don't know any <laughs> other way to say what I'm doing. <laughs> so,
0: <laughs> well, well yeah, I, I don't either. Better. And, and you and you've done a lot more. I mean, you've written uh, for the last OG you've written for why with Hannibal Burris, unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. Uh, you've had your own web series. You've done a lot of things and we are going to go through it, but uh, for the sake of time, I'd love to just hop in. We are going to go all over the place uh, in this interview as we tend to do in the Make It podcast and try to get sort of a living record of who you are as a person uh, that's extremely evergreen. Uh, and I'd love to start at the beginning. You were only four years old when your family left Haiti. Uh, what do you remember about Haiti, if anything?
1: Uh, I have- a very prominent memory of a beach, of being on a beach. We lived in saint louis du Nord, which is like north of Haiti. You know, Haiti is very tiny. It's on the island of um, Saint-Domingue. I have no idea. I don't know what I'm saying, <laughs> but it shares an island with um, Dominican Republic. And we lived in the very tip of the north part of Haiti on the, on the water. So I have a very like beachy, you know, pace of life in terms of my memories it's just hanging out with family being with family a lot um being raised in a very like communal very like intergenerational kind of setting with my grandmother my aunt and my uncle and cousins and um that kind of thing really great
0: quiet upbringing it's interesting um what's going on now with um the weather Mm -hmm. hurricanes on the DR uh, DR side Mm -hmm. and I don't watch enough news to know whether or not this is being undercovered or not do you feel like it's being undercovered or overcovered?
1: I I haven't I've read about hurricanes in Puerto Rico I don't know about the DR but I do know that what is being covered in Haiti is basically the fall of their society because i'm sorry that i'm laughing (laughs) sorry that's not funny that's not funny sorry but that's pretty much taken over the news is just ever since the president was assassinated
0: right um
1: yeah now there are gangs and you know people can't get gas like they can't get their basis basic necessities so it's you know i'm i feel so blessed all the time that i was my family moved to the United States, even though we we didn't have a we weren't poor in Haiti. We were all we were very we were very blessed in Haiti uh, or we were well to do, you know. But yeah, I'm really blessed to have been uh, brought to the United States by my family because it's just an ever, never ending uh, sadness in Haiti.
0: Yeah, it is. It, it um, Having spoken to folks in Haiti before just the general belief systems uh, are so foreign to um, let's say the rest of or Western society it, it, mm-hmm. it can be actually jarring um, but it but I'll tell you one thing we do we do this better than anybody on the planet is we just move on from a thing like yeah. like this okay Haiti's president got assassinated yeah absolutely what's on Netflix? right <laughs> like we would and then meanwhile for the last year this has got to be like a hellscape absolutely going think, on in Haiti
1: I think that's something that you know is another privilege of the United States that we don't think about especially now while our own democracy is come crumbling is that in a lot <laughs> of places it is hell on earth and it is still people are still immigrating here there are still migrants here there are still there are still places where this is a hundred times better. This is a world better than where they're, where we're coming from, you know? So I try to think about that every time I read the news and see yeah. some, some excuse my French fuck shit uh, going on with the Republicans. I'm just like, you know what? Okay, fine. <laughs> In other right. places, you know, this is still better than other places. Yeah. You have like, a what great can I joke do? about yeah.
0: that uh, where, where you are shitting on the United States and then you went to India. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, uh, Actually, I'm ready. I'm ready to go. I'm ready to go.
1: God bless America. You know what I mean? Yeah. Praise God. Yeah. But it's true. Yeah. It's hard to remember that there are other places where it is worse because America
0: is not doing what it's capable of right now. Yeah. We, we, we kind of know, you know, we're like a, we're like a divorced man or woman who in the marriage, like drove around in a Mercedes. And now after the divorce, they're like in a Ford Pinto and yeah. they just can't accept the new reality. Like, like this. Is, no, I, I, I know it's possible. I oh, know man. what's possible. I, I, I can't like go been down been in a
1: this. divorce.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, what, that's kind of, that's kind of how we, how we behave sometimes it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's wild, but yeah. I, we did have an interview with a filmmaker out of Atlanta named Frederick Emmy award-winning filmmaker. And he talked about doing this documentary uh, over in Greece where all these, uh, kids had gotten HIV in the eighties. And he was like, you would go to the worst ghetto in America before you would go to their slums. Like it's not even close. Wow. And so that perspective, I'm so glad you said that because that perspective is, is meaningful. Um, did you ever find out or do you have a good sense of why your parents decided to leave Haiti when they did? They were well-to-do. I, you know, do you know why they said bye and, and moved uh, to the States?
1: I, I think uh, there was just a general sense of the States is better. No, even if you are well-to-do. And my father's, my grandfather, my dad's father had a lot of property in Florida, and he there was a lot of family already in America. Before 9-11, like Haiti, Haitians could move very easily to America, and a lot of my family immigrated to the U.S., and I had a lot of family on my dad's side, especially, who lived in Florida. So it was a really easy transition. My dad went to high school in Florida while he, you know, he would go back and forth between Haiti and Florida. So Miami specifically. So I had a lot of family in Miami. So we just, we, when my, when I was about four, my mom took a shot and uh, made the move over to Miami, to be closer to my dad's family. And then eventually we moved to Massachusetts because I had a, her family, my mom's family um, is in Massachusetts.
0: What has, the family support been for your career path uh, i know there are stereotypes around being yeah an immigrant and the kind of work you should be doing or ought to be doing uh Absolutely. you chose to be a comedian which almost doesn't exist in right. some places outside the the us uh what what yeah. has that been like and, and and if you know yeah did you get your sense of uh, comedic timing from either parent
1: oh yeah I definitely think I got my comedic timing from my dad who does not think I'm funny by the way (laughs) I remember when I told him I was a comedian he was like why you're not funny (laughs) and I was like (laughs) you know he's the funniest man I know Uh... Um, he's just he's such a performer he's so goofy he's so you know he just is someone who makes fun of everything yeah I think I get my seriousness from my mom and like I have I think I have a two sided comedy brain, which one is like very um, absurd and just always looking at how absurd life is and how absurd cultures are and society is. And then and not taking it seriously because of that, not really respecting these rules that we create around ourselves for no reason. Yeah. I think that's how my dad kind of looks at the world. And then I have the other side of my brain, which is really my mom, which is completely humorless and <laughs> just yeah. never, never really getting the joke. Um, so I, I, I think it's created a very deadpan kind of comedy in me. Yeah, yeah And yeah. I would say that my parents have, I think my, I don't think my parents have any real reference for what I do. They they don't know what I do. They're very <laughs> concerned. They were very concerned at the beginning whether or not I had health insurance. They were just like, "Do you have health insurance? <laughs> what yeah. what is this?" You know. There would be times when I'd be working and when I would not be working. They didn't understand how I could be an adult and not, and not yeah. have jobs at certain points. You know, so. Um, they're supportive in terms of, I think they, they know that I have a good head on my shoulders and that I make things happen. You know, if I, you know, I'll do what I got to do to, to, to live the kind of life that I want to live and do the kind of work that I want to do. Um, I think it's, they've seen me struggle a lot (laughs) because of that, because it's not an easy path and it's not a recognizable path. And and also for it to be recognizable, you have to be like on TV. And a lot yeah. of times they're just like, we're, you're not on TV, so I don't understand what you do. And my web series was still too sexual for my mom. My mom's very Christian and she just thought it was very sexual and that she didn't like that I swear in my stand up and things like that. So Either way, I think they know I'm very strong-willed. They, they generally support me. They know I'm not doing anything terrible, but I still don't think they have a, any real reference for what I do. It just doesn't exist.
0: Yeah, and in your web series, Clinch and Release, which is hilarious, yeah. and uh, we'll talk about that later for sure, uh, genuinely funny. And you had people in that web series that we now know mm-hmm. and love people that are, are insecure, et cetera, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. uh, that I saw in the series. So you were a pioneer, um, this is, you know, a decade ago. I mean, so yeah, this is something that you were way ahead of the curve on. And it is funny that it's hard to tell a New York experience without being sexual, like you can't, like there is going to be a guy that's jacking off. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> right beside you. Yeah. Like, you need to know how to deal with that in New York. And That's what I thought the way you wrote that, because you, you wrote and directed, produced all this stuff, was perfect. It was like your friend in that particular episode was like, this is New York. You don't want to be like in a shitty town where, you know, a person doesn't even have the freedom to pull their dick out. Like, this Absolutely. is like <laughs> this I is like correct. what makes New York great.
1: Yeah, I didn't direct that series and i love that people always think i did but i had great
0: directors uh helping me with that series you know what you're right you, yeah. there was a there was a every i saw i've had his name in my head right now and i didn't write it down um that directed a lot of them can you give, uh
1: yeah jj adler jj adler the the second season um mm uh, Rakesh Barua directed the first season, but JJ, um, has also directed, um, oh my God, what are they called? Astronomy club on Netflix, which is a, which was a black sketch show that was executive produced by Kenya Barris. And it mm-hmm. had a lot of New York comedians, uh, as well. People that I came up with who I, who I think are so funny. So there's a connection there, you know, that has continued on. You years know. after that project has finished. Yeah.
0: Shout out to JJ and Rakesh. Yeah, for sure. Hopefully they listen to this and uh, sure. <laughs> keep, keep rocking and rolling. Uh, you are highly entrepreneurial. Is there a moment that you can remember growing up where you just had made the definitive decision that you were going to live a creative life for better or for worse?
1: That's a really good question. I, I don't know if there was a definitive moment. I think there were many moments. I I was a reader growing up. I read a lot of books ever since I was a kid. And I think that instilled in me that the world is very big and that the possibilities are endless. And that it just made me very aware of the fact that where I am, where I live is not it. There's so much to explore. There's such a big world. And I can do whatever I want, truly. Yeah. Um, And when I was in college, I just remember I I, the semester before I graduated college, I got a real estate license because I just wanted to work for (laughs) myself because I'd been working since I was like 15, you know, and I have always. Yeah, I've just always hated (laughs) working for people. I hate being on somebody else's schedule and. I, you know, one of the reasons why I started the Working Writer was just to give people a clear understanding of what screenwriting, what TV writing is, because I think there's so much mystery and confusion and shrouded information around what is the day to day of a screenwriter. What is this? What is the lifestyle like? What are the pros and cons? What do I actually need to know? How do I be successful? Um, I just, I just think there's not enough training. And but, but point of the matter was point of the matter is I just realized that I still have that entrepreneurial spirit and desire um, to do my own thing. And I think it started, I think it started young. I think it started early. And I think it started with working so young and so early Um, and just realizing that you're never really going to get ahead when you're working for somebody else. You just don't.
0: Yeah. There, there is a really simple equation to, having sort of long-term financial stability just for example Mm -hmm. and that is you have to own stuff and it's just it's just as simple as that and if uh, you know i have a lot of friends that are super smart that you know went to college and graduated uh, from the best schools you know vanderbilt is is a Mm -hmm. ton of my friends from vandy which is like ivy league of the south Mm -hmm. and they have these serious philosophies around non-ownership of things and that's cool. That's great. Cause they want to be unencumbered to be able to move to Australia tomorrow, whatever, but you'll always be chasing to some degree if, if you don't own something. So Mm -hmm. on one hand they don't want to own a house or car or be married, but they will own stocks and bonds and things like that. So at the end of the day, you had to own something so that you can do the things you want to do. I think it's a great, great point. Um, When I was younger, I know that you were called Oreo. Yeah. (laughs) I was also called, we have all these things in common, by the
1: way. (laughs) I was also
0: called Oreo. Mm -hmm. And it was because my dad's white and my mom Mm -hmm. was black. And you were called Oreo because you talk white. Mm Mm-hmm. At least to the people you grew up around and you're obviously black and not that I didn't talk white. I mean, I talk as white as anybody else, I guess Mm -hmm. uh, that would be accused of that. But I started using comedy as a defense mechanism in school so that I could be known for something other than being a biracial kid in the South um, at the time, which is not a big deal anymore at all. I don't believe. But when I grew up, it, it still kind of was. Did comedy, did you kind of cling onto that too to distract people from your Oreo-ness, if, if you will, if I can just create a word?
1: Sure, I love Oreo-ness. I also, I will say, <laughs> I feel so bad for um, mixed-race kids. Like every mixed-race kid <laughs> I've ever known has had some sort of like psychological... <laughs> Like <laughs> breakdown about their identity. And yeah. I'm just like, you know what? Power to you. You know, find your identity. You know, that's from me to you. Um, love yourself, you black, all right? I don't mm. I don't know what it is. <laughs> Mixed race kid means. You're black, you're white, it's great. Um, I think comedy for me was much more of a um not necessarily a defense mechanism, more a attempt to be seen, if that makes sense. Uh, just because I'm such a I get it, yeah, fearful, <laughs> shy person, and but yet I have this desire to be to tell jokes. I have this desire to put out work to tell a story to show people a side of me you know what I mean that might be very um reserved in person I think people always describe me as very reserved a lot of people think that like I don't like them even though it's like I'm not even thinking about you I'm like freaking out about my own (laughs) like how I'm appearing and how I'm coming off you know and I think it's really just this attempt to be seen and to 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 live and to express myself like really that's all I'm trying to do is just um not hide and it's really difficult a lot of the time and it's not easy and yet I have this compulsion to do it so I feel like it is my inner self doing its best to come out of its shell and to and to be seen and to not care about what people might think you know so I I think it's a very um inner, inner thing, if that makes sense. It's like really just my insides (laughs) trying to, to connect.
0: Yeah. I think it's a human thing, not, not even a race thing at all. Like we all are trying to find the thing that can help us be seen in the world and know that we're alive and significant. You know, when you're young, you do everything you can to fit in. Mm -hmm. And when you become an adult, you realize the trick is to fit out and to differentiate. And I think Absolutely. comedy is such a great way to do it. And if you'd been doing it all the way up, right. Get right. yourself in trouble in class. And then all of a sudden you get rewarded for the thing you used to get sent to the yeah. principal's office for. Absolutely. Um, and I do want the to The weird thing you, about you. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. The weird
1: thing about you is what makes you original and, and comedy demands originality, you know, and it, it, I think it's a beautiful medium, you know, I mean, art, demands originality, but authenticity, but yeah, yeah. Authenticity.
0: Absolutely. That's yeah. a, that's exactly right. And, um, I have this memory and I do want to just report to you that, uh, I've not had that mental breakdown yet due to Thank my you so much. biracialness. <laughs> I've been able to hold it together, but I had to use Thank a lot you of. so much. You know, yes, so I had to glad. use a lot of different tricks, Charlotte. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I mean, it's been a lot. Like I've had to, you know, be a chameleon. Like you know, I can dance in any room now. I, I'm, I'm moving. I'm flowing back and forth. I'm like a damn ghost. And <laughs> I do. I do remember. I do remember being used one time in somebody else's game, which oh, I thought no. was hilarious. Yeah. Uh, the funniest kid in our in in our class growing up was a guy named Darnell Scoby. That's already a funny name.
1: It's a hilarious name. Big old, <laughs> big old
0: dude. And and his name was Darnell Scoby. And he had a he was trying to talk the young new teacher into into dating him. So this is how hilarious this is. We're in class, and this new young teacher, I think her name was Miss Russell. She was probably 23 or 24, so really young, very pretty. And he decides to ask in class during one of the breaks, would you ever date outside your race? And she said, no, you know, I don't think, you know, I don't think it, it, it would it would work out. And he said, well, I don't understand, why not? Like, why, what's wrong with that? And she goes, well, you know, and she thought this was the perfect answer. You could tell that she thought this was the perfect answer. She was like, well, I just wouldn't want that trouble for the kids. And And Darnell looked at me and said, Chris didn't take any flack. Chris, do you take flack? <laughs> I was like, I don't take any flack for being biracial. And she was she was had to laugh because she, you know, the, his game was working. Yeah. Maybe he got with her later on. He's smart on the line. Yeah. you yeah. use as a me, pawn. Used me. I got I got no pussy out of it. No, I'm just kidding. No, <laughs> no. I, got, I got no action. I was a complete pawn in his masterful game of chess. Um, yeah. But that was all I can really remember about being biracial specifically, um, especially from the perspective of like um, it being like a most of the stuff happened to me that I remember was because I come off black. Mm. That was the real thing. The real thing was I had white friends that were calling me the N-word when I walked out the door.
1: Mm.
0: That was the. it wasn't the biracial thing. You know, the real thing was cops see something in your backseat when they pull you over. All of a sudden you stole that. Yeah. That can't be your PS1, you know, whatever it was at the time. So that all my bad experiences came from, from being black, sort of being perceived as black. (laughs) The hilarious thing is now we got DNA testing and it turns out I'm like 56% European. I'm like more European than black. Of course. And I so think, that
1: means your mother was had some European.
0: Oh, she was like kind of a middle light skin oh, black okay. woman. Of course she did. Okay. okay. Of course. Of, of course. Yeah. Yeah. My mm-hmm. listen, one of my great grandfathers is is a plantation owner. That's right, all right, right. I know. Yeah. yeah that's yeah. that's. <laughs> and okay. Yeah. I would still love to find out because I'm I'm like a lover of history. I'd like to find out like. What's going on?
1: You haven't done Twenty Three andme Me yet. You haven't. I have. Done like I was that? early oh, okay. adopter. That's how you did the early adopter on that. Yeah, yeah. Right off the gate. It doesn't game. tell you history, like it doesn't tell you names or anything.
0: It, it doesn't tell you names. I see. But every day, you get closer and closer and closer. And we will hear about someone who got caught having an extramarital affair when somebody takes the Twenty Three and Me test, and then it shows up that that's their son or daughter. Okay. Like, oh god! I see. How are you so related to this yeah. person? Like that happens on Twenty Three Me. There are people that show up you've never met them before. Yeah. And basically, anything over two percent is a significant relationship. Wow. That you have.
1: Wait, it's ancestry dot com that tells you the actual names of the, the names.
0: Yeah. yeah. And I think one day they'll merge. I see, Charla. Mm-hmm. And that'll be like one big company that has the DNA background. Like, like I know what parts of Europe and and Africa I'm from, Mm -hmm. then they'll combine it with the ancestry and the tree. And right now I get random names of people I'm related to that. are Like I see the people I'm related to in my family. That's how you know it's accurate Mm -hmm. because it doesn't know that it just until it puts it together with the, with the CRISPR, right? Like, like with the testing, like, you don't write in and say, my sister's going to do this test. Yeah, yeah Like yeah. it knows it. And that's how you can know that it's accurate.
1: That's crazy.
0: Um, And I come from a family on my mom's side where my grandmother had five baby daddies,
1: mm-hmm.
0: five children by five different guys. So mm-hmm. knowing like my line for my mother,
1: mm-hmm.
0: which sounds like trifling, but it really wasn't in the South. Like, like, when my grandmother grew up in, in Tennessee, like, you know, you, you were struggling, you know, mm-hmm. you, you know, she always, so it wasn't like that. She, she was basically married to these guys, but you know, you don't get married and they move mm-hmm. on and then things happen. So, yeah. but it's, it's fascinating. And I think that, I guess my overall critique is through these services like 23 Me and Ancestry, like you mentioned, it has the power to render all sort of racial conversations ridiculous.
1: Hmm.
0: It does have that power. Cuz there are going to be a lot of people who think they are a lot of things and they find out they're not at all. Yeah. And they've staked their entire personality and life on it.
1: Yeah. I mean, if they did any kind of social sociology study at school at all, you know, you'd learn that race is a social construct in the first place, and we buy into it anyway. There, there it is. Uh, so <laughs> yeah, it's never been real and "quote unquote" real.
0: Yeah. yeah, yeah, I totally yeah. You are speaking my language directly. That is exactly yeah. my belief system, how it was raised, and everything, and it's made my life so simple because I never wanted my skin color would be the first thing in the room. Good for you. I hate that idea that like the first thing that you should know about me and the first thing you should appreciate about me is the way I look. No, I'd rather you, like you, I'd rather you see my comedy first. Am I witty? Am I funny? Am I smart? Am I, you know, all those, those kind of things. But I I think to a degree, we're very superficial as people anyway, but. Absolutely. um, You did grow up. In Massachusetts, we talked about Florida, mm-hmm. but you did make that move to, to Boston. And that made me immediately think of Patrice O'Neill.
1: Absolutely.
0: And Patrice is one of the best comics of all time. I think elephant in the room is up there with maybe the top 10 best comedic sets ever. Everybody he's should a, go he's one
1: watch. Of, he's one of my absolute favorites, Patrice O'Neill.
0: Okay. Absolute favorite. Well, that's, I, that's, I wanted, well, he has this thing where he says, I, I know white people. Yeah. <laughs> I grew up with white people and it yeah. helped I think differentiate as comedy. Mm-hmm. And I was just wondering can you relate to that? Like is you grew did you grow up in Boston sort of help you find a different unique voice for a black female comedian so to speak.
1: That Interesting. Jar, that
0: box they try to put you in, you know.
1: Yeah, I mean I don't know if I I don't know if I've found a different, unique voice, but I definitely understand exactly what Patrice means when he says, I know white people, because you <laughs> you feel so much like Massachusetts is so white. It's like terrifyingly white. You You just you have to do so much to. You just feel like you stick out like a sore thumb, you know, and you have to do so much to like walk through their world, which basically means that you can't scare them in any real way, because they're always terrified of black people for some reason. What do you mean by scare them. them? I think white people in general, you know, when you go to a really white place, like, for instance, right now, my husband and I, we moved to Vancouver and um, Vancouver mm-hmm. is even whiter than Massachusetts somehow. I can't believe it. <laughs> and it is, you know, I think they're just afraid of my skin because I'm it's five too. it's it yeah. can get cold. It's pretty yeah. it's pretty mild. It's very Seattle weather like rainy. Oh, yeah. yeah. In the wintertime. It doesn't. I really never snow. know what
0: to wear in Seattle. Yeah, exactly. Whatever you yeah. thought you were going to wear. It's wrong.
1: It's wrong. It's gonna rain most likely, Um, but at a random time that you can't predict. But um, it it is just fascinating because, you know, places like Vancouver, places like Boston tout themselves as these very liberal, very welcoming places. And they just don't always live up to that there are definitely times still to this day, we're in 2020, we might as well be in 2023. <laughs> it's, we're so far into the future. And it's unbelievable, the prejudice that white people walk around with just this fear of black skin. And I have mm. locks now. And, you know, I'll walk into my building in Vancouver, and people will like, look at me, like, I'm trying to rob them, like, I'm, I can't possibly live here. <laughs> and I can't, Or if I walk into, you know, if I walk into a restaurant, I'm literally the only chocolate drop in this entire restaurant, you know (laughs) what I mean? And like, they just look at you and it's just, and it's, you're just so aware of the fact that your skin color is different because they are so aware and, and because they are so uncomfortable with your presence. And I've had to do so much to just make myself comfortable, you know, and make myself belong and make myself feel welcome because I don't I don't think even especially liberal white people, I think they're very, very unaware of their prejudice and of their own internalized racism and their um, their assumptions about dark skinned people. They just to me, it just seems like very old timey, very ignorant, you know, it, it just feels like such a anachronistic thing. It just seems like so out of place for the time that we live in. Especially for how, you know, how how clearly racist America is in terms of like now we have numbers, <laughs> now we've yeah. seen how people have voted, now we've seen, you know, how 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 much downplaying it over the last few over the last hundreds of years, what the effects of downplaying racism and pretending like it doesn't exist. You know, we, we're paying the consequences of, of that. I don't even know if that was your question, but Vancouver's white. <laughs> it's white as fuck. And so is Boston. And it makes me uncomfortable. And, and you know what, now I'm getting blacker and blacker every day. Cause now I'm just like, y'all not going to make me uncomfortable. I'm over it. I'm very tired. I'm very hey, well, tired. Hey,
0: amen to yeah. That. yeah. Yeah. I, I think it is a mosaic. It's It's, yeah. it's a, con- a conflation of a lot of different things
1: mm-hmm.
0: that I think came out of the nineties and maybe even out of nine 11 and race is in that mix because Mm -hmm. we ended up having, you know, Barack Obama in the, in the white house. And I living in the South, I kind of saw some things I'd never seen before. Mm -hmm. It's like, people just lost their mind a little bit, like temporary insanity, um, around it, like, uh, reverting back 200 years. Like the language wasn't even the same. I have this memory of being in a restaurant. I was in college at the time and I remember being in a restaurant and there is this group of really rednecky looking white guys. Um, mm-hmm. Look like they don't, like white guys that don't exist anymore, right? Mm-hmm. Like I'd, I'd never seen them before. Like these are guys, they're sitting way across the restaurant and they just look like they came right out of the Civil War just without the uniforms, right? So imagine that. And one guy with long, scraggly hair and he's wearing a tank top, the kind that gets like, cut so low that you can see his rib cage. And he just slammed his fist on the table and said, we cannot have black blood in the white house. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, I can never imagine so hearing it like that yeah, yeah. in public.
1: Right. Right. In public. And I yeah. thought,
0: Oh man. Um, you know what? I think he actually said the N-word. He didn't say black. Yeah, I, of course he I, did. I edited it for him. You're
1: editing it. It's just like, there's no way he said black. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. And I thought, yeah. I thought about going over there and then I thought, man, that's just an asshole for no reason. Cause no. it's five of them. It's one of me. I'm in school. I'm studying. I didn't. And it. I just out like of it. yeah.
1: Nothing's gonna come out. It's not like you're gonna change their minds, you know. Yeah, you're
0: not gonna beat them into like progressivism, acceptance. Yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> it's just like no, nah. <laughs> these people are lost and they should be gone. You know, they need to yeah. go with the wind. You know, but I I think that it's a really really interesting thing that's going on in the United States. All these people who denied that racism was a thing. You know, I actually think people have been living in a made up world the entire time. You know what I mean? Like the entire time when we've had police shootings, all these things, and people pretend like the black person was doing something wrong, or there isn't something structural going on. Now they're, just being, you know, I think before those were dog whistles, obviously those were dog whistles. And now they're just having to be honest <laughs> because yeah. they don't like what's yeah. going on. And, and I'm just like, you've been bullshitting the whole time. Now it's just like, all right, now it's re- for, for, for once we're being real, which yeah, and social like, media. Like, makes it
0: at scale, so it makes it easier to see each incident. I I do think it's a small contingency of people that yell loudly and get a lot of attention. Mm -hmm. That's why I think it's a mosaic, because at the same time all that was happening, there was a lot of documentaries about um, and a lot of movements around banking, around Mm -hmm. uh, what government is doing, around what big pharma is doing, around what... agriculture is doing around sort of the patenting of seeds and putting farmers out of business. And like, so there is this giant sort of paranoia that was building up and sort of co-mingling with that presidency. And, and, and the outshoot of that was what we have, what we have now. So you have like deep distrust, um, isolation from social media mm-hmm. the racism that was always there from this from that small contingency because there are a ton of trump people for example that aren't racist or don't view themselves that way like they would never <laughs> yeah. say those things mm-hmm. i just said right mm-hmm. and so it's we it, we, we are in a strange time because a lot of things happened at the exact same time uh and they all play off each other in a, a really toxic sort yeah. of poisonous way so it's it's dangerous we gotta um, uh, be careful with it.
1: I highly recommend, uh, ta Coates. We were eight years in power because it talks about this aftermath of a black presidency. He talks about like what we're living in now as a backlash as yeah. a white, white backlash to yeah. a black presidency. And it's, it's really good.
0: Yeah. I, it's, yeah. I mean, government and I guess in the military, they call it blowback. Yeah. So we're having a little bit of blowback right now. Yeah. Um, we'll see what happens. Midterms are on their way. I do want to turn to your uh, writing and your school Mm -hmm. a little Mm -hmm. bit. Yeah. And you're quoted as saying you are not your thoughts. You have control over your thoughts. And that's a very smart thing and a very Charlotte thing to say after spending (laughs) the last two (laughs) weeks living in your world. Yeah. Uh, in, In what ways does being part of a writer's room help or hurt? the creative process?
1: Like how do you ensure
0: that your voice is actually heard?
1: That's a really good question because so much of what gets you hired into a writer's room is having a point of view is being able to articulate how you see the world. Um, And being yourself and being original, you know, that is required when you're in these interviews, when you're talking about the script or the pilot that you saw with the showrunner or the producers or whoever it is that you're in the meeting with. Yet at the same time, being in the room, I think, first of all, like a lot of writers are like on the spectrum, (laughs) like a lot of writers are like very, you know... (laughs) (laughs) You know, like very in what is the word? Like, you know, they're very in their heads. Writers are very in their heads. You know, writers can be very anxious. Writers can be very world um, builders, yeah. We're world builders, you know, so we can be very um we can just we can have a lot of insecurity, you know what I mean? Um, and I'm I'm no different. I have so I I really when I'm in the room have to focus and pay attention to what's going on because I can easily get in my head about my pitch about what I just said, whether or not people liked it, whether or not people like me, <laughs> whether or not I'm smart, whether or not I'm good. And all of that can just be such a distraction and is such a, um, it can create this really terrible internal world, you know, like when you're in the writer's room, at least that's my experience. And I've had very, um, I've had very bad experiences in writer's rooms because they, and I've had some good ones. I've had some very, very good ones. For instance, Grand Cruz is, is probably the best writer's or I've ever been in in terms of the That's culture, awesome. you know. I, I'm I'm around a lot of Black people. I actually think our conversation about race really fits well into transitioning into writers' rooms because it. I think writers' rooms are a reflection of the whiteness of the industry and the old timey kind of structures that are patriarchal and racist. You know, in the ways that they find writers, choose writers, hire writers, promote writers, who gets to have a show, who gets to be a showrunner, who gets in access to the information, who gets to, who gets to sink or swim or who gets to be supported and encouraged and mentored. You know what I mean? I think there, there is a lot of work to be done. Um, and I think that, I think that the thing that helps helps the most in a writers room is having um con- self confidence in your own voice and being okay with I think comedy is a really great prep- preparation stand up in particular improv in particular it's really great preparation for being in a writers room because you have to be collaborative you have to work together it's not about you it's about the team it's about contribute contribution it's not about like i pitched that and it's amazing and it's getting in it could get taken out any two seconds later (laughs) like the whole story could get thrown out like it's really about making the best possible show helping the showrunner you know execute their vision to the highest possible you know caliber uh as funny as possible as dramatic as possible if you're making a drama you know as dramedy as possible if you're making a dramedy but it's just it's it's I think that um, I think that that is what hurts your creativity is being in your head, questioning yourself, second guessing yourself, having low self-esteem, in the writers' room. And then um, I think what is awesome about the writers' room is the camaraderie. It is the teamwork. It is the group mind. Like when you get into a flow. Um, it is making each other better. I learned so much and get so much from everyone in the room, whether it's the PA or the showrunner, you know, like everybody brings something, everybody contributes, you contribute your energy, you contribute your point of view, you contribute your history. There's so much to share and to connect. It's a really great connecting point. So there's so many, positives and negatives, you know, that really are. Yeah.
0: I can totally agree and see where you're coming from with, uh, or in respect to using the stage as practice for that voice. I watched you do your sort of fried chicken hummus comparison Mm -hmm. bit, probably on eight or nine different stages (laughs) and you didn't do it the same anytime. Like yeah. you were trying out just micro variations mm-hmm. of the same bit to see which timing got the best response. Mm-hmm. And you only can figure that out through those through those reps. Mm-hmm. Uh, comedic writing, you're in a writer's room. There's a lot of people who they all are confident. They all think they're funny. In our day-to-day work where we are reviewing scripts, one of the easiest ways for a story to fall apart is a shift in tone. How do you ensure one comedic tone for the show to be great mm-hmm. with all these comedic styles in the room, or is that more on the showrunner to make sure everybody kind of has a similar style?
1: I think it's both showrunner and time. Like I'm already noticing from the first season of Grand Crew to the second season of Grand Crew, this season it feels like we're nailing down what is funny about our show. We're, and I think it takes comedy shows in general. You know, a lot of people say like Parks and Rec wasn't funny until the second season and like Sanfield um, for sure wasn't yeah, funny. Yeah, exactly. exactly. So it's just like it just takes time to to get it, you know, to to play with it and see it. Um and it also takes the showrunner um having a vision and having um t- a specific POV and taste you know, and like putting, putting themselves into the show. I think, I think our showrunner Phil Augusta Jackson, he's so great. He just has such a clear, he's original. He, he knows what's funny about himself. He knows what he finds funny. He has a lot of fun putting himself into the show. And I think it comes across and I think it, it comes across as original.
0: Is there a process of elimination for jokes that make it into the show and don't like is it thumbs up, thumbs down. Is there? Absolutely.
1: It's like, I, that's why word. I love comedy. Yeah. I love comedy because it's so democratic. It's like either funny or it's not, it either gets a laugh or it doesn't. And there's nowhere Neutocracy. to get a, yeah, there's nowhere harder to get a laugh than in a room full of comedians, <laughs>
0: which like, is antithetical to me. Yeah. No, because, because to I me, mean, we people that are funny laugh easy.
1: Yeah, no, <laughs> we laugh all the time. But the joke has to in order for it to make it into the script, I think it has to be a clear far clearly funnier than the, uh, the previous joke that was pitched. And you're also doing a thing where it has to be on story, too, and on character, too. So you're like calibrating according to. But sometimes truly just the funniest thing just wins out because it don't matter. It's like, is it funny? If it's that funny, then it has to be, it has to go in. That feels like the
0: writing process on Family Guy and how sort of all those vignettes probably got their start was there's some funny shit going on in the room. It doesn't fit the story. How are we going to get this in there? Because it's too funny to ignore. Okay. Our characters are the kind of characters that have flashbacks all the time.
1: Anytime somebody references Family Guy, it makes me think of the South Park episode that makes fun of Family Guy.
0: <laughs> love that episode. <laughs> they hate. Lo- love that it's episode. So and in my personal yeah. opinion, and I don't want any fights, but South Park greater than Family Guy in my personal opinion. It has such a long in run. Plus, they do the movies too. and those yeah. those specials, and they're they're on point politically. It's yeah.
1: I am on, I'm in the same camp. I'm in the same camp. No shade to, to, um, family guy, but I like things that say something, you know, Uh, it's why I like always sunny. Like I like cultural, um, what's it called? Um, oh my God, satire, satire, cultural satire. Thank you.
0: (laughs) This is what I'm here for. (laughs) This is what I'm here for. You know, this is just
1: what I do for a living, but I can't remember the words.
0: We'll we'll draw this thing home together. Um, Who's the funniest writer today? Ooh. I think one of the funniest just
1: passed away, unfortunately. I think Jack Knight um, was one of my favorite stand-ups. He wrote on a. Uh, you say Jack Knight? Jack Knight, yeah. He just he just passed away. Um he wrote on um Big Mouth, and um he's written on a bunch of other things, but I just as a stand-up, I thought he was so funny. I thought he was like the next Eddie. he was like the I thought he was like the next Eddie Murphy. I thought he was that funny. Wow. Um yeah. Aside from Jack Knight, I mean, I I'm just going by stand-ups. I definitely think Janelle James is super funny as a stand-up. Um I think there are so many actually. I think Aparna Nancherla is one of my favorites. She hasn't come out with a special in a long time, but I think she's she talks about anxiety and depression. She's just like, she's speaking my language, you know, yeah, she's yeah. really making fun of <laughs> all of the darkness. And I, I really love Aparna's comedy. I've loved it for a long time. Um, the funniest writers are the best writers.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: Um, there's yeah, so It's an interesting out. distinction, yeah. right? There's so much stuff, good stuff out. I'm like trying to think of like, a show that I've watched recently. I mean, I watched this fool, this fool on Hulu, Chris Estrada. Uh, I think that's like one of my favorite pilots I've seen in a long time. Well-written, well-acted, um, great story. Um, yeah, there's just so many, I don't even know.
0: (laughs) I don't even take Well, well, you gave us some homework right there. Now I need to go check out this fool. I yeah. need to uh, definitely check out Jack Knight, Janelle James.
1: Absolutely. Mm-hmm.
0: And um, there's probably so many others, but but I appreciate that. I know it's a very yeah. difficult question to answer in your position. Uh, yeah. This one might be even more challenging, uh, unfortunately. Uh, what is a joke that the second you heard it, you said, damn, I wish I wrote that? Cool.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Oh but that's hard. Um damn. I don't know. I feel like um you know I guess the person I was thinking about was Nate Bargatze just because his specials are so funny. Ali Wong specials are super funny, Michael mm-hmm. Che is super funny. Um But I think it's Ricky Gervais. So Ricky Gervais has a special called, um, what is his special called? It's not Supernatural. It's the one that he had before that one. But he writes, he has this joke about like... um, who would you rather have like dinner with anybody alive or dead? And it's like, it could be somebody that has a peanut allergy or Hitler. <laughs> 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 and he says that he'd rather have it with Hitler or whatever. And then he he says, hear me out. And then he goes into this whole explanation about meeting some lady on a plane, with, you know, and her daughter has a peanut allergy and you can't eat peanuts or whatever. It's I think Ricky Gervais is just like one of the best storytellers. Um, that whole special um let me see if I can find Ricky that's
0: hilarious because it's yeah uh, I'm I'm already thinking about what my answer
1: humanity it's called humanity humanity Um, all right I'm gonna write that down it's called humanity and it's I think from start to finish it's one of my favorite specials um yeah and then he has this uh joke about like because he loves dogs, and he talks about like how dogs are made in heaven, and like it, it, I don't, I'm not even saying it well, but it's just a really, it's it's just really great storytelling and really great joke writing. Yeah.
0: All right, I've now yeah. got even more homework. I can't wait yeah. to check that out. I um, I'm a fan of Ricky Gervais too. I listen to mm-hmm. like the most random stuff from him. He like once a quarter he'll get on a podcast with this guy named Sam Harris. Okay and they just literally record their phone call and it's hilarious That's it's like funny. a good reason to listen to sam harris when ricky gervais is on i mean there are other good reasons okay. no mm-hmm. no shade to sam harris but when he's got ricky on it's just ricky being ricky right. with this really smart guy who's giving him smart answers to sort of seemingly dumb questions but
1: no the way. magic
0: of ricky is those dumb questions are very very deep no way as you as you get into it um How do you deal? You mentioned anxiety and Mm -hmm. some of the other things you deal with depression. How do you Mm -hmm. get through writer's block when you feel like you have it?
1: I just take care of myself. I'm not somebody who I used to try to like write through the writer's block and write through depression. But I actually think that it is your brain telling you to take a break it's your brain telling you I've hit a wall and I need a moment. And at least it is for me. And I used to not be able to get the hint. And now it, I, I roll with it. Now i I'm like, Oh, thank you brain <laughs> for telling <laughs> for alerting me to my need to take a minute and sit down. You know what I mean? Sit the fuck down, go get a drink somewhere or don't, you know, go hang out with friends, go do something else with your mind and with your attention, go for a walk, go hang out with your spouse like whatever it is you need to do to like be a person and come back to the writing when you're fresh uh yeah. so that you don't start to resent the writing you don't start to resent the work um nothing at least i think nothing's that important even if you are on deadline you're not going to be bringing your best self when you're are when you're hitting writer's block when you're hitting that wall like i don't even like to say writer's block cuz i just think you're not <laughs> blocked it's just you just need a minute you know you just need to take a break and come back and be fresh, go to sleep, take a nap, (laughs) you know, like drink some water, like whatever it is you need to do to like refresh and then come back to the page and you'll be fine.
0: I deeply appreciate that answer. I just was having this problem last night. I was doing some writing for one of our projects and I had all these things on my mind. It was, I have this calendar and this is super nerdy. Charlotte, so please, you know, I mean, judge me appropriately, but it's super sure. nerdy. I have like life design built into my calendar, like my iCal. Mm-hmm. And at 11 o'clock at night, there's this little sort of event and it's called Stop Work Now.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Go to bed.
1: That's too late. Because, <laughs> right. No, right.
0: It prevents yeah. me from like staying up till two, where I get mm-hmm. in this place where I feel guilty. Mm -hmm. And I have like the monkey mind syndrome where I'm just like in there, like pounding away thinking, oh, no, the world's going to end if I don't finish this all today. And I was sitting there last night and I was writing and I was like, I don't have the words to say exactly. I know the theme, but I don't have the words. It's because I keep thinking about the fact that I didn't exercise today Mm -hmm. and I'd made a promise to myself to exercise Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. today and I didn't keep my promise to myself And it's getting really close to like the time where I would have to stop. Mm -hmm. And then you start to weigh the options. Like, will I write this better in the morning or should I do it right now? Mm -hmm. And once you just ask yourself the question, the either or question, and you, when you weigh it, it's like, it becomes really obvious, just exactly what you said. So I left the office, put on my running shoes, Took a jog for thirty minutes, got the workout in, shower of course, awesome. Talked to folks and went to bed.
1: Nice.
0: woke up today refreshed, ready to go. Know I'm going to write better. Nice. The world is not going to end. To your point, if you just take a little me time, but just I would I would caution and just say don't let me time turn into procrastination.
1: Absolutely. Um, because we
0: do tend to avoid things that bring us anxiety, stress, pain. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We find all yeah. kinds of excuses while we're
1: right, right. We don't want we don't want to do work, of course. <laughs> that would be too hard. <laughs> but um I definitely think so I had a really bad burnout at the end of 2019 and I talk about it a lot just because I feel like no one had ever I had not heard anybody really talk about it. And I couldn't, I didn't understand what it was. I, I think like, you know, so many of us are workaholics and we're all striving so much. And we completely ignore signals that our body is sending that you need a break. And I realized one of the most effective things to combating my burnout was taking structured, deliberate breaks, because when I was taking a break, let's say my my writer's room ended. Now I now I have like possibly three to six months of time to myself. And I would spend that three to six months absolutely panicked about what my next job was going to be. I never had like, okay, I'm taking one week where I don't do anything, where I don't check email, where I don't talk to my manager and try to like, you know, plot out (laughs) the next six months to two years of my life. You know, I'm just taking a break. And that I found has been the secret is just deliberate structured breaks and paying attention to when I need a break, you know, because I think that's, I think part of it is just like not trusting ourselves that we're going to work hard and like not wanting to disappoint ourselves. But I can, whenever I have those feelings, I think back to everything I've already done and I know that I will get back on track. I know that I will accomplish things. I know that I will get to where I want to get to um, and that it'll be okay. And that I don't need to stress.
0: I'm curious. What are the two best pieces of advice? you've received in your career so far and who did they come from? Yeah,
1: I love this question. Um, I think the first piece of advice that was really great came from my grandmother and she said, remember who you are. Um, And she said that to me when I was first going to study abroad, when I was in college, and it was going to be the first time that I was very far away from home and didn't know anybody. And I just love that she said that to me. Like, I definitely know that she meant it. Like, don't have, don't go have sex, <laughs> like, don't, don't don't do drugs. You know, I definitely think she meant it that way. But I I take it with me. um, into this industry because I think this industry is really important to remember who you are. It's really important to remember that you're much bigger than this job, than this note from an executive, than this, you know, rejection, than this fear of the unknown. Like you're so much bigger than that. You have such a much bigger life. There's so many, there's so much more to life than just this work. and i i think about it a lot especially lately um mm. and i think the next best piece of advice again wasn't even particularly like industry specific it was um live below your means <laughs> it was
0: yeah. spend
1: spend less than you make you know <laughs> that was the best
0: and it seems simple but it is through. it is difficult especially in a in an industry where comparison is a so omnipresent. It's rampant. <laughs> yeah. Rampant it's comparison. Rampant. And it's not blaming anybody. We do it to ourselves half the we time, do. you know? Yeah. And um, I think my, my dad for this, uh, I learned that lesson really young and I remember, so we grew up modestly and my first, I was, I was going to get my first pair of like brand name shoes it was like, uh, I guess I was in seventh grade by the time I got my first pair of like non-buddies, right? And so and there was this pair of Nikes and i just been coveting them. I'd just been looking like, I want these, I want these, I want these. And it's funny because they are green uh, and our company colors are green and our podcast is green. But anyway, they're kind of green and white and they were like running shoes. They were like absolutely fire. I knew that my friends wanted them and liked them too. So that's all I needed to know, right? And... Sure enough, Charlotte, I get there and they're just a little tight and they don't have the neck size up. They're just a little tight. They don't have the neck size up. And I'm begging. I'm like, no, we got to get them. We got to get them already because I already promised that I was going to come back with some shoes. And against, I think, his better judgment, could kind of see my desperation. My dad buys me the shoes. I go to school the next day and sure enough, people do notice it, but they notice it for like an hour. Like it wasn't a big deal. And I realized then that the comparison thing lives mostly in your mind. Like most people aren't paying attention to you at Mm -hmm. all. And to test the theory about a week later, I wore mismatched socks Mm Mm-hmm this is like before the ankle sock revolution or whatever (laughs) it's Mm -hmm. like, so these socks went up my leg a little bit, uh, but you could tell they were different and not one person all school day in middle school. uh, Nonetheless, you know, like
1: Mm
0: -hmm. noticed that I had different socks on. That's how little people are actually paying attention to us or or to yourself. And you Mm -hmm. convince yourself that everyone's watching your every move and, you 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 think everything is about you. I'm still a little bit. I'll admit, I'm a, like I'm so glad I have Nick in my life because mm-hmm. he is so disconnected from the bullshit, and and I'm kind of have to be in it a little bit because I do a lot of the sort of marketing and and outreach, and I take every non-follow personally sometimes mm-hmm. i take every little move and, and i'm like what why there's something behind that there's a conspiracy there like what's going on what did i say what did i say what did i do
1: mm-hmm.
0: and then a lot of times it's just there are people living their lives and yeah. not really thinking about you that's all
1: yeah so, so everybody is so deeply concerned about themselves <laughs> it is bananas um yeah. Yeah, but at least it's good that we're aware of it. You know, there's it's really hard not to be that way. I, I don't know how in uh, the United States of America, <laughs> in a capitalist, <laughs> not even the U.S., but just like in a capitalist Western culture, how we cannot be. Uh, we have to do so much not to be.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. It, it it takes training. It takes work. And that's why you have your your wonderful, wonderful school, the Working Writer School. That's W E. R K I N G S and twerking, working, twerking. Work. That's right. The working writer school. So I want everybody to check that out for sure. Um, what are the because you are at a you are teaching a class? I I think you'd be uh, particularly uh, apt to answer this. What are the biggest creative and business mistakes you see newcomers making?
1: Yeah, that's another good one. I think. First, the biggest mistake is, I mean, there are so many, but I think the two biggest ones are number one, thinking that getting a manager is going to change your life. Mm-hmm. Maybe it happens 1% of the time, you know, or or you need a manager to, to get on, to get put on. Um, so people focus on finding a manager and they don't focus on the creating the making of the work, you know, I'll I'll hear about people looking for managers and they don't even have a script or they don't even, they just want to be writers and they don't have a sample. Hmm. Like I think it's to me, it sounds unbelievable, (laughs) but Um, that's what it is, you know? And and, I mean, I was looking for a manager, but I was, I had a, I had a web series. I had, you know, I had, I had work to show, you know, but I think a huge mistake is looking for representation when you don't have any actual work to show. You need work. You need something that represents your voice to be able to give to people. Um, And I think it sounds super obvious, but some people don't think about it. They just think that I need a manager, I need reps and that's how I'm going to get, you know, staffed or I'm going to get in a writer's room. I'm not saying that for like actors and other people, but if you are, you know, looking to be a screenwriter, you have to have written something. Um, and then I think the second mistake is thinking that meeting people and knowing people is more important than the work. Mm. Absolutely. You have to meet people but you also have to make things. So it's like, I always tell people, they're like, what do I need to do? You need to meet people and you need to make things. It's both things. Cause you can be, you can become a PA in a writer's room um, and work your way up. But eventually at some point, someone's going to ask to see your script. (laughs) So you, you might as well just be working on one as you're making your way through the ranks. Um, So I would say, I I think both of those lead to the same mistake, which is, um, not recognizing that the work comes first, like make things, build your voice, you know, figure out, uh, be bad at writing for a while, like most of us, you know, so that you can get better at it. Um, yeah, that's a. I I think those are the two biggest things are just people's focus is not in the right place. It's on meeting people, it's on getting repped and it's not on what it needs to be, which is getting better as a writer, like having the skills because the skills are what are going to be the real thing that you can leverage is your skills.
0: I totally agree. And speaking of bad writing, if I asked you or put you in a scenario where you had one month mm-hmm. to teach someone how to get prepared for the comedic stage,
1: mm-hmm.
0: what would be the first three things you teach them?
1: Get on stage ASAP all the time <laughs> in as many places as you can. I I remember when I was doing so much stand-up, and people would come up to me and ask me how to get started as a stand-up, And I'd ask, you know, have you been to an open mic? And they had not been to their first open mic. Oh, and wow. to, to me, this is a, and and I started asking that question because I would start giving people so much advice until I realized, oh, they haven't even been to an open mic. And so it's just like putting the cart before the horse. Like you don't even, I actually don't think you know the right questions to ask. You're not even asking the right questions. If you haven't gone out and just done it. So the first piece of advice is go out and do it as much as possible and fail as much as possible. And the second piece of advice is to, to reframe your relationship with failure.
0: Mm. Because
1: people don't like to fail. They don't like to be bad at things. And I am number one. <laughs> I'm such a perfectionist. <laughs> I don't like for anybody to know that I've ever had a bad idea. You know what I mean? <laughs> like it, it's, abso- it's actually when you think about it and when you talk about it, it's nuts. Our obsession with being perfect.
0: Are you a Virgo?
1: No, I'm a Libra.
0: <laughs> okay. I think we're, we're speaking the same language. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah.
1: No, uh, reframe your your relationship with failure. Failure is the key to everything that you want. Like failure is what is going to show you what you need. Success is great, but failure grows you up. It grows you and success is not a measure of growth. Success is a result of growth, you know? So it's like, well put. Um, and I think the third thing is too unfortunately right, which is the hardest part. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm so lazy. We're also lazy. I feel like if anything, I'm like such a poster girl for like how you can be lazy and still get this work because nobody wants to write. If you think that you're lazy, you have not seen anything yet. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, it's like, I'm lazy, sir. It's just like, but you have to write. You need Chris rock. was has a, he says one time you need jokes, you need jokes. And it's true. You need jokes. You got to write. So it's just like, get up as much as possible, fail as much as possible, write as much as possible. I love that. Thank you for
0: recounting it for us. Everyone take heed. You've been so tremendously uh, generous with your time. I have some speed round questions for you and then we'll get you out of here. All right. You wrote an episode of the last OG.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Now what people may or may not know is that each episode is named after a hip hop song. What was your episode's title and how did you pick it?
1: I did not pick it. Oh. Um uh the the showrunner or Tracy uh picked it. Um yeah, we don't I think what's interesting is that in every fr- writers room that I've ever been in, um the writing process is very collaborative and even though my name is on the episode, every single person in the room touched that episode.
0: Yeah, yeah. Good point. Yeah. Fair yeah. point. Um, catch and release. Are you going to do a season three? Are you going to develop this into a 30 minute, a one hour I think you need to read. That's my opinion. If everybody mm-hmm. goes out and watches catch and release on YouTube, you can, or, or, and I'm sorry, clinch and release. I'm saying That's catch. Okay. I mean, clinch, yeah. <laughs> clinch is actually so much funnier and better yeah. clinch and release season three. Is it going to happen or are you going to do clinch and release the show? How are you, how are you moving forward with this? Cause I think it deserves so, it.
1: I actually sold this show. It was the first thing that I ever sold uh, years ago. Like when I first oh, wow. entered the industry. Yeah. I sold mm-hmm. it years ago. I was absolutely not ready. <laughs> I did not know what it was, you know, as a half hour, I don't think I, you know, I was so green. I don't think I had the right reps to really, you know, mentor me and shepherd me and help me get it to that point. So that ship has kind of (laughs) sailed, you know, I don't know if there's ever a, you know, a revival of it in terms of like a half hour. Have they done anything with it? I I wrote a pilot and it, okay. they, it got passed on. Yeah. So I okay. I sold it. I wrote a pilot and they passed on it and which was a super valuable experience for all the reasons that I just said, which was looking back, I didn't have the right uh, team. I didn't have the right mentorship and I didn't have the skills yet, frankly, you know, to really know what that show was and to develop it into a half hour. I was so new as a writer. I couldn't believe I sold it. Truly it was just, I think having a, um, proof of concept and having a clear voice and having a point of view. I think that is, and being confident in the room because I didn't know what I didn't know at the time. I was so brand spanking new. It was super fun. Um, and a fantastic spectacular failure <laughs> and uh, very necessary. Um, that's,
0: that's fascinating. I, I yeah. can't wait. Uh, and hopefully you'll honor me by doing a round two sometime in the future. Absolutely. We can we dig into that a little bit more. I think that'd be Absolutely. very useful for this, for this audience. Um, Do you have any feelings on sort of the Dave Chappelle and Joe Rogan phenomenon of the last three or four years, just in the social landscape? And
1: I mean, I will say in a nutshell, I hate these niggas. These (laughs) niggas, I think, are... (laughs) I think Dave Chappelle specifically, you know what I mean? Nobody gives a shit about what I think about Dave Chappelle, but what I think is that he is... I think that he's like sucking up all the air in the room, you know, his voice is the loudest at a time when I don't necessarily think he is right. I Mm. thought that his bit about trans people in the, in his late most controversial special was so tone deaf and not compassionate and just again, old timey. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what I think about Dushba. I think he, I would love for him to be quiet, but he's very rich and Netflix apparently is fully behind him. So
0: right, right, you know, I right. don't know
1: if my voice matters in that, but I definitely think it's time for a new, new voices. You know, it's just, he's just, I think he's not in step with what we need right now, which is acceptance, which is compassion, which is. Understanding, you know, Uh, but that's that's where I'm at. And Joe Rogan, I don't listen to him that much. I will be real. I do enjoy his interviews like um, he'll have people on there that I'll, I'll, you know, I'll listen to this interview, (laughs) you know. I, I don't know what he, I have not followed him enough. Like, I feel like I only know about him because he's become such a cultural phenomenon. Like, I don't know anything about his comedy. I never really listened to the show. Like, unless like an episode goes viral, then I'll usually listen to that episode. Um, so I don't know enough about what he's done to really speak on it. But Dave Chappelle, I'm a, I'm a big fan. I came up on Dave Chappelle. So, I mean, listening to him and being influenced by him, so I have more stakes in De Chappelle. Like what De Chappelle does matters more to me. Um, yeah.
0: yeah. I, I think in general, it matters more to comedy as well, because I think yeah. there are a, a troop of, of uh, a gang of, of comedians that are together that are saying we are like the last bastion, the, the, the front line against, yes. you know, for freedom of speech. and And once they, once whatever powers that be topple us comedians, yes. it's all over for everybody. So and so yes, they become very righteous yes, about it.
1: They have become very righteous. But the thing is, they're not even being they I think that they're not aware of how what they're saying is cloaked in homophobia especially amongst Black men, there is homophobia. And I'm nice. like, if we, if we don't address the fact that Black, there is a fragment of Black men who are very homophobic and who fear trans women, you know what I mean? And it's just, or, or feel threatened by it or feel whatever by it, whatever is going on, we gotta address that first before we address the fact that you know any kind of freedom of speech is being, and I think it's both things. I absolutely think as a comedian, that we need to be able to say things we need to be able to have open conversations but at the same time don't cloak your homophobia in uh i'm being oppressed or whatever the fuck <laughs> it is just like okay you hate trans i mean th- that's how that bit came across as if you don't see these people as human you don't see these people as equal i couldn't i i don't i don't think that they're the same thing um
0: Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and you see that this medium we're on now, podcasting has become uh, a launch pad for new ideas and voices, specifically in comedy. Uh, it seems like every comedian has a podcast. Are you going to start a podcast in the future? So, Any plans?
1: Yeah, I have so many plans. I had a podcast called The Secret Lives of Black Women that I co-hosted mm-hmm. with my friend, um, with my friend, uh, Lauren Domino. Um, mm. That was at Stitcher for three seasons. I absolutely love doing that podcast. Stitcher ended up dropping our podcast. And I talked very openly about things getting bought and sold, not, <laughs> right. not, not getting greenlit because that is the, the process, you know? Um, and then, you know, my, my friend lover, she doesn't really, she doesn't want to be on on the microphone, which I totally understand. So I, I've just been thinking about other podcasts that I could do. I had another podcast in development at at NPR that I decided that I didn't want to go forward with because it was during my burnout. And I, I realized I was just like working on fumes and I should just stop for a bit and be still. And now I'm just like, yeah, I'm thinking about other podcasts and what I could, what I could do. So I have, ideas and things in the works I'm not sure when they will happen but it's out there
0: I can't believe you have a friend named lover and I also have a fr- oh, I, I thought you said lover it's like <laughs> I was like that's I can't so believe funny. that because I actually have a friend named lover and that's, his and it's a guy not a girl that's ridiculous like, yeah well his last name is high too so that's h you know h-i-g-h so his name is lover high that doesn't make any sense yeah and i and i played basketball with him, and so you have to always grin on the court you know get your man lover or whatever Mm -hmm. like to say his name it's like that old cedric the entertainer joke Mm -hmm. i can't be calling you delicious Mm -hmm. um i'm a (laughs) grown-ass man so he puts us in a quandary but i've known Mm -hmm. him for 20 years very very nice guy if you're listening this lover Uh, i do love you you're you're awesome Mm -hmm. guy and probably a, a wonderful lover as well. As well uh, this conversation has been wonderful. Wonderful. Absolutely. Charlotte, I, yeah. I, this has been just a blast. And if you do go back into the podcasting space, please let me know. I would love to just know what's going on, be a part of it if I can. And um, in that spirit, can you let this audience know where they can find you on social media, find you on the internet, uh, where they absolutely. can see some of your work, any of that stuff?
1: Absolutely. My only social media right now is YouTube, um, Charlotte Lauriston at YouTube. Um, I also have a Pinterest account for the Working Writer. Um, I'm really trying to like figure out what what role does social media play in my life right now, <laughs> but that yeah. is where you can find me. And of course, I have charlottelarison.com if you want to go on there. Um, but yeah, that's it.
0: Yeah, I subscribe to your YouTube page. I recommend Mm -hmm. everyone else do it. And remember, you can see so much of her stand-up, her web series that she sold her pilot for, uh, clinch and release Mm -hmm. on YouTube. It's all there. So everybody, please go do that. And uh, I think we will end on this. Uh, You spent a little bit of time in politics. Uh, You worked for Senator Kristen uh, Gillibrand's office. And uh, I'm just curious... What was it that kept that career path from taking hold for you? And, and would you ever consider going back into politics? You're a very smart person, very capable.
1: Thanks, Chris. I mean, I uh, I am a politics junkie. Um, I found that our the office, like working in a political office just wasn't the best place for my voice. It wasn't the best place for my sensibilities. I find politics in the United States to be a hilarious joke. <laughs> and I just mm-hmm. was like, I might as well go do comedy because, um, I, I find that I have a much bigger voice in comedy than I ever had. And I was like low level. I was like, in, you know, right out of college, I was an administrative assistant kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I just, I just found that politics is just a lot of administrative work. It's a lot of, uh, red tape. It's a lot of, um, posturing. It's a lot of, it's a lot of politics. (laughs) Right. And I was just like, I'd rather just be doing something creative, something fun.
0: Well, we're all the better for that decision. And, uh, Until the aforementioned round two, uh, I wish you the best of luck. I know you're hanging out in LA now, keep killing it out there, keep doing your damn thing. And uh, this has been just an absolute pleasure and uh, I I can't wait to uh, talk to you again.
1: Thanks Chris, ditto, absolute pleasure. Thank you so much.
0: Yeah, my pleasure and everyone in the audience, be sure to go to bonsai.film to learn more about what we're doing and make sure to go to all the places uh, Charla mentioned earlier to see her work, especially on YouTube and on Pinterest, and you can catch uh, up with her and take her class at the Working Writer School as well. Go do that if you're smart. Charla, I'll see you soon. Bye. All right. Peace. Hey, gang. One more thing before you go. I want to talk to you about Indie Insights. Indie Insights is our bi-weekly newsletter and love note to the film industry, movies, and the creatives that make them. Not to mention you, our esteemed listeners. Inside, you'll find curated industry trends, articles, exclusive commentary, and underappreciated films from filmmakers like you worldwide. And the best part is that it's completely free. So, join today at www.bonsaifilm. It just takes a few seconds, and once you sign up, you'll get the very next newsletter. It's that simple. Go to www.banzai.film to get indie insights, our bi-weekly newsletter, and join a network of film creatives like yourself. And don't worry, we'll never sell your information or spam you with a bunch of nonsense emails. Just the bi-weekly film industry goodness you need. And if you ever tire of Indie Insights, we hope not. But if you do, simply unsubscribe. No gimmicks, no games. So, one more time, go to www.banzai.film to get Indie Insights for free. And thank you for listening.